0: Hi, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to These Three, a series in which I talk to artists, musicians, writers, directors, actors, photographers, all sorts of creative people, in fact, about their artistic lives by focusing on three key works, one that they made themselves, that they're particularly proud of, one by somebody else that they wish they'd made, and one that they're working on right now.
1: Hi, I'm Jonathan Yeo, and I'm going to tell you about the painting I made, the painting I wish I'd made, and the painting I'm working on at the moment.
0: We're in West London, in a back street of, uh, of Chelsea, a beautiful studio. You've been here for several years now, and this studio has heritage in itself. You, it used to belong to the great... Scottish Italian sculptor pop artist Eduardo Paolozzi. I actually came to the studio. I interviewed Paolozzi many years ago here. It's
1: a funny thing with spaces. I've had grander, madder studios in the past, but this one somehow has a great energy in it for, pe- for, for, for making work, and that may well be what may, I think he was here for forty years before yeah. I was, and so it may well be why it 's it's, it's hard to put your finger on what it is it 's partly the light coming from different places it shouldn 't work it 's a, it's a sculptor 's studio, not a painter 's studio the light 's coming from all the wrong places, but I quite like that when i 'm trying to illuminate a subject in interesting ways and sometimes do things. You find things by accident that you wouldn't have thought of in advance.
0: Your paintings are very well known because very often the subjects are very well known. Mm. For those who don't know your work, and I'm just glancing around, I can see a portrait of Maxine Peake up there. Uh, there's Idris Elba. Damien Hirst looking down upon yeah, us. Yeah, there's De- Dennis Hopper. Dennis know. Hopper. A, a, couple, uh, a couple of others. Is, is
1: that Cara Delevingne over there? There's a Cara and uh, <laughs> bottom car. and Basically, there are lots of little studies for bigger works which have sadly left my life. Um, but it's nice to have little souvenirs of, of, of some of the, you know, a, 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 a mad cross-section
0: of people who come through. But you are known primarily as a portraitist. What yeah. is it about the face? Have you got a particular face? Fascination, and does it mean that when you meet people, you are always focusing in a way on a face that maybe the rest of us, in a way that we don't? Are you looking for something else? Because actually, I should also say that your paintings are not just about visual representation; it's about a suggestion of what lies beneath. Mm. That's really what you're trying to get to, isn't it?
1: Yes. So uh, traditionally, a portrait it's where you're trying to tell a story about someone. It's like a potted biography through their appearance and I think that photography obviously can te- tell you what someone looked like at that moment you've got the luxury of having more time with people uh, and and sometimes you see things where they're not conscious of being you know, being looked at before you start or after you finish and you go out for lunch and you see them behaving in a certain way because we're generally not one-dimensional people that and I think the f- fun of a portrait is you get a chance to layer in different sides to someone's personality Mm. and therefore almost by definition the more complex the personality is to start
0: with the more fun you can have with the painting and also there's a backstory sometimes hinted at in the painting famously you painted tony blair it was after the iraq war and you painted him with a poppy Mm. um a symbol of Peace was he wearing that poppy when he was sitting for you? Yes,
1: he was actually, and I took a lot of the credit for that <laughs> um, because it was at the end of his time in office, and we be. It's, it's politicians tend to be remembered for the events and things that happen to them rather than what they're planning at the start.
0: And all politicians' careers end in failure, <laughs> yeah. famously, oh, yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, especially at the moment. But I, I'd been sl- slightly paralysed by indecision about what to do with this one because that was a great opportunity in a way because we knew that he was likely to be remembered for his foreign policy. But at the same time, I didn't want to make it trite or preachy or any of this fall into any of the obvious traps. Uh, And uh, it was November and he came in wearing a poppy and I was like, oh wow I didn't, hadn't thought of that and he was like oh should I take this off I was like no no don't worry I can, I can always paint, leave it out of the painting if we don't need it but I spotted that instantly and the nice thing is, as, you know, from a purely visual point of view it's a great counterpoint to the painting which is all blues and greys really and it's you know, at a glance it could be blood on, 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 on this mm. lapel uh, and there were various other little references, the, 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 changing the Labour f- red flag to a red rose and all that sort of thing. But basically, it's a very, obviously a very European thing that we recognise that as a sort of symbol of war remembrance. I, I thought I'd left it ambiguous about whether he was um, looking defiant or remorseful, but most people seem to read it as just him being sort of p- pinned down as a warmonger. Well,
0: I, that was probably the second time you painted Blair wasn't it I first came across you when you did a series of portraits three portraits Tony Blair William Hague uh, and Charles Kennedy Mm. the leaders of the three main parties during the so it wasn't the 97 election was it 2001 2001 election Mm. campaign and that was an official parliamentary commission I think it was Tony Banks wasn't he who chaired the culture committee or whatever in parliament and that was a great commission and three really interesting portraits Having grown up in a political household, for those who don't know your father, Timothy Yeo, Tory MP, did you have a particular fascination with politics and were you trying to bring that together with with the art? I think I was certainly conscious of having grown up around some political
1: figures and being very interested in the personality side of it. I think that people tend to sort of see things in terms of ideas and uh, slightly caricatures when uh, yeah, from, from afar. Mm. But actually, I was always interested in the, in the idea of how individual personalities affected decisions that are being made and, 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 and how things played out, sometimes not in ways that are obvious on the outside. And I think that, you know, also you realise that I think we tend to polarise people, politicians, especially people in the public eye, as, you know, good or bad, black or white. And actually, there's, you know, a whole range in between. And I was very interested in that. Yeah, people go into politics with good intentions, but not, they have to make compromises and sometimes bad decisions. And often wear a
0: mask in public as well. Yeah, mean, very you're much much so. trying to strip that yeah. mask away, I guess, with those yeah. portraits.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, but at the same time, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was hanging around the idea of an election. It was one of the sort of uh, earlier. Works well. I was trying to have a parallel to conceptual idea, if you like, that it was about how well they did. So yeah, you know, I called it proportional representation. The oh, bit of yeah, they were all pump. different sizes, weren't yeah, they? Those portraits exactly, and and so uh and that that was a bit of a, yeah, a, a way of telling that story. And so yeah, it comes back to what you were saying before. I think that you know, if if you can tell a story about the wider picture at the same time without it overwhelming the painting and getting in the way then that's that's yeah the more layers a a, a work can have especially a portrait the better I think
0: you didn't go to art school famously Mm. when did you first pick up a paintbrush when did you realize that you you could do it well the uh, I think it probably goes
1: back to when I was at school and had what's now recognised as probably a
0: severe case of a- a- ADD. That's attention deficit yeah, disorder. Exactly. What You just couldn't concentrate on anything, one particular thing. Yeah, well, thing. you
1: couldn't choose what you concentrated on. But oddly, the t- two, two things that would help concentration for people who have that, one is having music playing, which obviously wasn't possible in class. But the other thing is to be doing something that you're interested in, in my case, drawing. And so I, would, I found that the lessons I was able, allowed to draw through... I would actually hear what was going on and remember it. Ah. The ones where I was told to stop because I wasn't concentrating and I then couldn't remember a thing because my mind, my mind would wander all over the place. So it was actually, a, they had a practical side to it, but also meant that I was very often drawing the, the teachers and caricaturing them because that way I was looking at them had the extra benefit that it would make my friends laugh and they thought it was cool. But therefore, actually, that was probably quite useful training to be doing a lot of that in my teens. And... I didn't set out to be a portrait painter. I had lots of ideas about different kinds of things I wanted to do, but it was something I could do fairly easily. It was very out of fashion at the time, yeah. Yeah, in the early mid-90s. And so the
0: YBA uh, movement, conceptual art, came back in
1: exactly. And I mean, I loved all that work, and I had quite eclectic taste. But obviously, I also had to make a living, and so portraits were one thing which I could do quite easily. And so that was the way I could afford to, you know, pay my way through the learning curve of my twenties.
0: By now, you've probably painted hundreds, possibly thousands of portraits. I mean, do you you got any idea how many works that you've made? Um, certainly I think several, several hundred, several Um, hundred. uh, I, I, I
1: probably do about 20 or 30 proper paintings a year.
0: Well, just looking around, I mean, there are dozens here in the studio in various states of, well, some of them are finished and framed and others are stacked against the wall. And I mean, it's just a fantastic studio, this, because there are the paintbrushes all lined up in order and a huge pile of oil paints there in front of a canvas that you're obviously midway through. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's start with the painting I made. It's a tricky thing because
1: you obviously, a lot of these things are a, a result of a lot of thought and effort and a labour of love. Um, sometimes the ones that seem most magical, the ones that seem to come out of nowhere. I think one that probably has more significance than most, partly because he was a friend of mine, partly because it was the sort of main work in a little retrospective I had at the National Portrait Gallery a few years ago, was Damien Hurst. Anyway, it's interesting painting other artists because you've got that added layer of the fact of them being vaguely, loosely in the same business and a bit of pressure, if you like, because you, you feel that they, they've got a more scrutinising eye than some mm. um, and people will be making comparisons. Obviously, the fun of it was that you know, he's, he's yeah, a playful person and so was interested in doing something unusual. His work is very different from mine. His, in some in in a way he's you know, he's a great contemporary sculptor I think he's you know the things he was originally best known for and still uh, does spends a lot of time on are his animals in vitrines whether or the more recent stuff which is um, a sort of classical a hybrid sort of work on a grand scale so it was it was a fun opportunity and the painting sort of evolved from me going him coming to the studio me going to his studio trying to get some ideas they were doing some of the formaldehyde work one day which gave me the idea we talked about it in the studio he said oh I could put on one of the dry suits if, if, if you like and being Damon he was able he, was able, he made a call and in about 20 minutes someone <laughs> one drops one round and he squeezed himself into this incredible sort of rubber suit to protect at, himself from the formaldehyde. Exactly. So that's what he used back in the day when he would. He actually went into the tanks yeah. to, to 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 make the work.
0: And he looks like a deep sea diver. Yes. Well, but that's the weird thing, isn't it? It's
1: it's it's a nice ambiguous thing. I think that as soon as I saw it, you, know, you could read it as at a glance because it's got this gas mask as well. Uh, and some people thought it was, he was a sort of, sort of kind of paramilitary sort of riot policeman. Others, as you say, thought he was, a, he was a diver. That was enhanced by the fact that I painted it in slightly formaldehyde colours and tried to give it the impression of him maybe being submerged in in one of those tanks himself and then obviously once i'd made that connection then to put in a slight suggestive framework of a tank which has also had a sort
0: of slightly sort of francis bacon look you know yeah, sort of like absolutely. minimalist construction yeah. i thought when i saw that painting that is a reference to mm. francis bacon that's damien in one of his own vitrines but of course bacon himself mm. would often do that the, his subjects were sitting within yes. a glass case and of course. Francis Bacon is a massive hero of Damien. So, I mean, there's
1: a, a kind exactly. of a
0: circularity there, isn't there?
1: Exactly. And um, we'd been talking about Bacon as well. So that's probably partly why it was in my head. And, you know, I think, is, that's a, you know, I think the, the expression on it is, is, is mildly, it's is somewhere between controlling and cheeky, if that, if that sounds possible. Um, the, the pose makes him feel like he's like, slightly above you, yet the sort of expression is definitely some mischievous... The idea was to sort of like the question mark about whether he's there making one of his own works or whether he's been made into one. Very good. Uh, and yeah. so it was, just, it was one of those nice occasions where actually the paint, sometimes you start a painting with a fixed idea and that's what comes out. But it's also there are other times when something evolves as you're working on it. And this is one of those. I didn't know at the start how it would end up because of that. Possibly the, the multiple stories sort of woven into it, uh, which I think makes it something people I noticed spend a, a lot of time in the museum looking at it. Yeah, The main thing you want these works to be seen. Uh, and so um, that
0: one's certainly one of the ones that sort of is the first one that gets asked for whenever I'm doing a portrait show anywhere. <laughs> How do you know... Well, there's two questions. How do you know when a painting is finished? Because um, I guess the temptation is to keep going and going. Mm. And actually, the interesting thing with many of your paintings is you uh, you concentrate on the eyes, the face, the nose, the hair, but very often the background mm. and even, I don't know, the texture of a shirt mm. or some kind of artefacts that are around that give a suggestion of who that person is are often sketched in and unfinished or blurred mm. or slightly distorted. Mm. What, so at some point you just think, It is finished, but how do you know Mm -hmm. when that point arrives? Is it instinctive? It's a a good question. I'm not sure I always get it
1: right either. (laughs) I definitely overwork some and and wish I could undo them. Yeah, when we look at a a scene, when if we don't take it all in in painstaking detail, we see other human in the in the your frame of view are the most immediate thing. And yeah, probably people who are listening can test this out. But yeah, if you glance at something and glance away, the things that stay in your mind are the face if there's another person there or, or body language if there are people body language is important as well we make judgments about the situation whether someone's a threat or a friend or you know any number of things in between what their mood is what's likely to happen next their age their gender all kinds of things in a a nanosecond you know without having to think about it we just compute all these things because that goes back so far in our dna we don't check out every detail of the room we might we get a sense of their body shape and their clothing without getting all the details and it's very interesting actually uh, i've been working with some technology companies recently exploring how we our mind sees things as opposed to how the cameras see things and it's, it's definitely, the, 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 I think they're coming around to this idea that we are selectively editing in a very sophisticated way. And although I didn't know that at the time, my work, I guess, was based on the assumption that something like that was going on. And obviously I do a massively exaggerated version of it. Yeah. But I think that in the future, we may find ways of representing things uh, through technology that may be a bit closer
0: to the, that slightly collage way of painting. That's interesting. I mean, it's what Picasso was doing, of mm. course, with cubism. We are not looking at everything at the same time and just looking at you here now in front of me and I can see aspects of the studio around. But it is distorted. The peripheral vision is unclear mm. uh, and it keeps coming and going. It's broken up. I mean, but as you say, that's sort of an unconscious decision. Mm. You didn't set out to no. do that with the paintings. You just instinctively happened to be yeah. tapping into that.
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: So that was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was going to be, how do you know when a painting is good? Where, I mean, what point is, does the satisfy? I mean, why that Damien one? Why yeah. did that one work and other ones don't? That's a good question. I don't think you always
1: do know when the work's good or not. So I'm, quite a few works I've done which I thought were great, um, I now look back on and realise that wasn't the case. And sometimes people told me at the time, I just chose not to listen. Um, but I think also, and, and yeah, there's a flip side, which is sometimes you know, things get better with time. I think you have a funny thing when you're making doing anything creative, which is you obviously start off with some sort of intention and if the work that comes out fulfills that you maybe see it as a success or if it doesn't then you don't value it in the same way as you might and sometimes you only realize coming back to things ages afterwards that something was actually much more interesting than even you intended because Mm -hmm. of the accidents that happened while you were making it so uh, anyway it's a bit of a um, (laughs) long-winded way of explaining with that one I just felt that it, it had a power from the start, uh, and I think the squ- a square canvas, which is interesting, uh, you know, square canvases are, uh, didn't exist really in art before the 20th century. We now got very used to them because of social media, as well as Warhol and lots of 20th century artists doing them. But they are a very. The reason I know this is because I used to buy antique frames at one point because I was making collages and trying to give them make the look of old paintings, and that you couldn't buy antique frames in the square shape. Right. Um, you are, they had landscape, which is wide, or portrait, which is upright, and that was that. And so, but it's interesting. I think square pictures do seem to have a power to them. Like all the kind of perspective dynamics converge on whatever you're doing. Um, so that I think that painting I knew was going to be strong, but obviously, the more it went on, the more fun we were having, the more layered into it. Uh, I was I, I had a good
0: feeling about it. So the painting I made, the portrait of Damien Hurst, the painting I wish I'd made. I mean, this is a tough one, isn't it? I and mean, I'm giving you, you know you could you could pick anything from history. It could be a cave painting that's, you know. Mm hundred thousand years old huh. um or it could be something that was done last week it's really
1: difficult uh, and uh, you mentioned picasso which is funny enough i think the one i had in mind beca- just because it had a, a, a sort of powerful effect on me at a sort of formative age you're absolutely right about how difficult it is because there often you mesmerizingly extraordinary things about art that's been done recently that's done 500 years ago i was in rome last week looking at um paintings over there which i thought i knew but i hadn't really realized just how extraordinary they were and i also actually in, in recent years been very conscious of how just sort of dis slightly distorted our view of art history is through the prism of the um yeah western art history which has you know canonized lots of caucasian uh, european artists who were the ones who were able to indulge their careers uh, more easily than 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 other 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 groups and actually you yeah, know early on sort of from, from discovering Frida Carlo and Alice Neal and Gwen John, especially the sort of subtle power of some of those, and I mm. couldn't believe that they weren't a bigger deal. The thing that had a sort of steering effect on me was seeing a Picasso portrait of Ambroise Vollard, I think it was, who was his dealer at the time. And this is when he was going through his sudden, massive cubist phase in around 1910, 1912, when he went from painting these you know, quite nice neoclassical sort of um, uh, blue and pink periods, which I think may be slightly overrated, but then to this thing where he suddenly worked out that the world could be seen in a different way. And that sort of revolution, which he was right in the middle of, was such an extraordinary thing at the time. And I think people didn't know how to to really deal with it. And this was a portrait which, you know, from a distance, you can quite clearly see that it's supposed to be a portrait of a man. and You get an idea of what he looked like. And yeah, the more closer you get to it, the more broken up and distorted it is, and you can't believe it made so much sense from a distance. And that it was—it's sort of like an easy way into understanding that phase of distortion and seeing the world in different ways. It's, cub- cubism is. It, 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 in a nutshell, was about taking multiple viewpoints rather than just one. And I guess it was, it was like a reaction to the
0: takeover of photography in the early 20th century. Well, it's what actually a lot of the digital photography now, particularly that stuff that you can do on your phone. And recently mm. you showed me something you can do on your new smartphone, which is to take a, a 3D scan yeah. uh, and to represent, and then it's shown on the screen as a as a 3D head. Picasso, in effect, was doing that 100 years ago. <laughs> Yes, in a sense, I think he that was absolutely that idea of piecing things
1: together you know and and playing with the depths and, and, and three dimensionality in a totally new way. I think that, as you say that you know, suddenly we 've gone in the last couple of years to having things on our some some of the newest phones, which and that 's going to massively increase I think in the next few years there 's another revolution potentially coming in terms of three dimensional artworks, whether it 's actual physical artworks or um, virtual artworks which seem to be there and as real as something that is there and I think that to really explore and yeah, really make use of this you know of all these new ways of making work using three, yeah three dimensions in, a, in an entirely new way and so I think I wouldn't be surprised if in five or ten years time there's a whole lot of work which completely changed our view of the world again.
0: There we are. So the portrait that Johnny Yeo wishes he had painted. I mean, it's a silly thing to ask, really, isn't it? Because you weren't around 100 years ago. But it's a painting which means something to you, uh, which has had some kind of influence. Picasso's portrait of Ambrose. Voila. That was his name, was it? Yeah. Okay. Where is that painting? Do you know?
1: Um, It might be in the Picasso Museum in Paris. I think it was on loan... To a show, a cubism show, because um, uh, there were a couple of great cubism shows when I was around the, around the time I was leaving school, right. which had a great effect on me, and I think that one, I think, just was the one which certainly influenced my work very rapidly afterwards.
0: Very often when you talk to an artist, whether it's a visual artist or a musician, a writer, filmmaker, and you say, you know, what's your best work, they say the next one. (laughs) Uh, So the question is, the painting I'm making, um, (laughs) I mentioned it at the beginning of our chat. It's here in front of us. You're going to talk about this portrait that you're making at the moment. Mm. At first glance, it looks a lot like Elton John in his 1970s pomp what is that? It's like a sort of yeah. like feathered feather wings, wings yes. and a gold suit with yeah. flames and devil horns yes. and uh, heart-shaped, rose-tinted glasses. It's not Elton John, but it's close. Who is that? Uh,
1: my friend Dexter Fletcher has been making the movie um, Rocket Man, which you probably all know about now. And it's Taron, who I've got to know. It, it was, they, they were sort of teasing me with this idea of doing a painting of him in character. And I went down to see them a few times on set, and realised it was actually possibly a very interesting thing to do. Not least because obviously I like him and them, and I li- I love the the outfit as you say. I mean, it's not often you get to paint an outfit that's quite so flamboyant
0: and ridiculous as that. Uh, I haven't even put the sequins on the suit <sighs> yet. So that's Taron Egerton as Elton John on yeah. the set of Rocket Man. And, and he
1: is incredible. I mean, he does.
0: He's incredible. He sings in it,
1: doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's got such charisma. Um, he's a lovely man. Um, and we've had a lot of fun doing this. Obviously, he's taken a risk singing it himself as well. didn't have to do that. But he's, you know, he carries that off amazingly. There's an incredible chemistry between the actors on the film. It was a thing, one of the things I picked up. And then, obviously, all Dexter's films look beautiful as well. I think the film is, is amazing, and there's lots to um, enjoy in it. From my point of view, with the painting... It goes back to what we were saying before about um, you know, p- p- trying to capture someone's identity, really, in a painting. The whole premise of portrait painting, Lucian Freud used to say, is that you have to believe that people are what they look like. That's the sort of portrait painter's credo. You have to believe that everything you need to know about someone can be worked out from their appearance. The thing I've noticed over the years painting actors is that actors are for a more problematic subject than most, possibly politicians as well, but Because they are pretending to be someone else using those same tools by how they move their face, how they dress and who they're pretending to be outwardly. And therefore, there's a slight sort of paradox, which is that yeah, obviously you're interested in a great actor because of what they've done before, but whatever they're doing now yeah. Is, is, yeah, the better they are, the more successful they are at misleading you into thinking there's someone new this time.
0: That's really interesting. I spoke to David Bailey the other day, and he, I said, you know, of all the people you photograph, whether that's politicians or models um, and film stars and directors and other photographers, who you know, who is the hardest in terms of you know professional groupings the, the hardest type of person he said always actors yes he said because you never know who they are yeah. and they're always in the middle of a role and there's something about the role that they're playing at that moment that they bring to the studio and you have to try and somehow strip mm. away that mask so is it is it the same trying to paint an actor then do you think
1: I think I, I, I totally understand what he means and I think photographers have a harder job in a way because they've got to do it in one session I find usually what happens is everyone actually, not just actors, wear a bit of a mask uh, and they usually get more comfortable the second or third time you see them. Yeah,
0: the mask drops with you, I guess, over
1: a period of time, doesn't it? Exactly. I don't envy the job of a photographer and I think sometimes obviously Bailey's a great one um, at sort of cutting through things in conversation and uh, <laughs> making people sort of like, you know, lose their... Uh, he charms the mask off yeah, usually, exactly. You're never quite sure, even if they are, you know, not in character, that they're not just playing the part of the artist's model that day, you know, What's unusual about this picture is, of course, that the character he's playing is someone we also know from the real world. Again, he's playing him very convincingly. We do know that he's Taron, but at the same time, a lot. Yeah, we are registering so many signs of Elton. And it's a very interesting thing. So this, this question of, of where does, is there a point, a tipping point where he stops being himself and starts becoming the character? That's obviously the case with all actors. But I think with this one, because we also know the end point, we know where he, what he's trying to do and so more aware of it. And I think the idea was for him not to be in a full performance mode, but to be slightly, you know, kind of looking slightly introspective or distracted as if it's not clear whether... He's, you know, the actor waiting to go on stage, yeah. or Elton waiting to go on into a performance. I, I, again, I think the ambiguity
0: of that makes it a bit more intriguing, and also the multi-layered aspect because that's Taron Egerton playing Elton John at a period of his life when really Elton John was a character who was played by Reg Dwight. Yes. I mean it's got that kind of yes. you know where where is the real character yeah. within that painting? Who is the real person
1: there? Well that that's a nice point actually um because I think Elton is one of those amazing performers who definitely goes into performance mode and then is a sort of slightly sort of different person totally. off stage and so he has that as well. So it's a sort of it's a it's a multiple story about I think the uh, yeah, c- complexities of of, of of being a performer, but also the job of doing of, of do, making a portrait of someone where it's not quite
0: clear who they are or who they're trying to be. So how far are you off finishing this painting? Is <laughs> <then? laughs> that whole question again? Right, isn't yeah, it when, when it, is a painting finished? The thing is, also I've, I've been
1: kind of, I keep going away and leaving it and not and then coming back and deciding I um, it's it's not right. Um, and yeah, there's always a slight chance I might just start it all over again. But I think that it's it's pretty close. I just um, like you were saying, my instinct is to go minimal with paintings and only give you the information you absolutely need. I got quite excited about the ridiculousness of the outfit with this one, and all the all the outfits have been designed as a mashup of his stage outfits from the '70s um, uh, by a brilliant um, uh, costume designer. Uh, um and it's, it's julian um julian day um uh and, but, but yeah so uh, the uh, the costumes in the film are amazing yeah. this one is this is one that recurs there's so many different things going on i just have gone it's the what's the opposite of minimalism i don't know it's it's suddenly
0: it's, <laughs> Maximalism. Yeah,
1: it's a glam yeah exactly uh, a glamorous overloading of detail uh, and it's you yeah, that's that's it's it's a lot of fun doing something different
0: and how often are you in here uh, working not just on this painting but other ones is it a sort of is it a kind of a, a nine to five thing do you have to get in at a certain time every day is there a working routine in this place
1: i think i think most artists would probably tell you um the same thing which is you know you can't be sure which days are going to be the most productive right but unless you're here for a lot, you know for early enough to take advantage of it uh when they it is a good day then you you you, you you're you you're missing too many opportunities and so i mean yes and i also have family i tend to you know treat it like a day when I'm, so when i'm in london i'm here every day uh and if it's going well i'll work into the evening if it's not i'll pack up and go home early
0: Wonderful. It's looking fantastic. So I better get out of your way. Let you get on with Taron as Reg as Elton. <laughs> when do you give a t- a title to a painting by the way do, the, do most of your paintings have titles or are they just the name of the, the sitter uh,
1: it, it varies a bit I think when, when, there's, when there's a bit more of a story they sometimes have a bit more of an sort of unplayful title so that, come, um, that comes yeah. later it's usually when someone's putting the, a, a catalogue or book to bed or and I haven't given something to someone yet um, it's, it's usually done retrospectively uh, although sometimes it, it comes along the way and sometimes people, people offer suggestions Johnny
0: thanks so much for that Back to the painting, I guess for you, is it?
1: Yes, I, I, I need to get this one finished. So I'm going away again, and um, and there are, as you can see, lots of other ones that need to be started. But thank you. It's it's great to see you,
0: you too. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed Jonathan Yeo, have a listen to the other episodes featuring the likes of Paul Weller, Hayley Atwell, Tom O'Dell, Lucy Preble, Kwame Kweama, Guy Garvey, and there are many more on the way. Please do rate and review These Three, and it helps other people find the series. And subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Also, have a look at the website. We've got more information about all of the guests. There are photographs, videos, uh, previews of forthcoming episodes. We're on Twitter and Instagram, of course. These Three is produced and presented by me, John Wilson, in association with Analog Folk. Thanks for listening.